You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. I want to get into the Word this morning, and I want to take note of something that Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. It's a peculiar phrase. It's really a strange phrase when you look at it, actually, because it doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. So let's take a look at it together, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says this to his apostles, and he says, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Matthew 10, 16. What does this mean, and what can we learn from it? This message was for his disciples at that time, but it's also a message for us as disciples as well. This uh, statement's a bit of a confusing one, so I did a little research on it because it seems like, well, why would Jesus tell me to be like a snake? You ever think about that? It's like that seems completely the antithesis of everything that we've led to believe in the Scriptures and everything that we know about what snakes represent and what they're all about and those sort of things. So why did it seem like Jesus is telling us to be like serpents? And so doing a little research on this, the, the Bible exposition commentary says this, quote, God's servants will be like sheep in the midst of the wolves. They will need to be tough-minded but tender-hearted. This opposition will come from organized religion, government, and even their own family. So why don't you think about that for a moment? Being tough-minded but tender-hearted. That's really important. Because you can go through a lot of stuff and become really uh, callous and hard-shelled, but lose a soft heart. And so what the, what I believe what Jesus is trying to communicate here is like, listen, be tough on the outside, but always have a heart for the Lord on the inside. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, quote, The Lord's words to the apostles concerning their response to their ministry was not encouraging. Their task would be difficult because they would be like sheep among wolves, where false prophets are often spoken of as ferocious wolves. It would be essential for them to be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, that is, wise in avoiding danger, but harmless in not forcibly opposing the enemy. Now, this is not to say that in spiritual battle, we do not battle with the enemy, but rather that we shouldn't be careless in the way that we choose to fight that battle. Can I just say for a moment that sometimes we get ourselves into fights we don't need to be in. Sometimes we get ourselves into conflict because we are careless and foolish. That's not spiritual warfare. That's just being dumb. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's times where we're just dumb. And we get into things. We get easily offended. We get combative. We get difficult with people. But that's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is as you're serving the Lord and doing his work and doing good, then inevitably the enemy comes against you with all of his fury. The word here, harmless, is the same word for innocence. The disciples are to be without guile. They're simple and sincere, not full of deception. It's important for the follower of Jesus not to become hard or corrupted by hard times. Listen, 2020 was a hard year. You can become hardened and jaded and corrupted if you allow that to happen. But we are to keep our heart for the Lord and for people. That's so important. 
that even as you go through difficult things, you don't lose your love for God and you don't lose your love for people. Nor does the Christian have the desire to do harm to others. That's not the kind of disciple Jesus is looking for. What it means also, it means to be smart and spiritual. Being clever but not corrupt. You can be clever without being sneaky. You can be clever without being corrupt. There are some people you know that they're clever but not in a good way. That whenever you deal with them, they're like, you never know if they're telling you the truth or not. We're not talking about that this morning. What we're talking about is being clever but keeping your heart pure. Being used by God but being prepared for difficulty and hardship. The disciples and apostles, listen, we could simply say, well, God will protect them, right? They're the apostles, they're the disciples. But you notice that the disciples and the apostles often moved when conflict arose and hostility came about. We see Paul moving quite a bit to avoid uh, being arrested or avoid being beaten and put to death. Why? Because he was smart and discerning. The disciples stayed alive as long as they could because they wanted to preach Jesus to the world. Being wise like a serpent is about exercising wisdom and discernment in our actions. And it seems odd that he would encourage us to be like that. But he didn't mean for us to be snakes, but to be smart and cunning like a snake would be. Alfred Benson said this, quote, Being wise as serpents is, on the one hand, being so prudent not to irritate the wicked and those who will oppose you by your behavior and your doctrine." And not to do this unnecessarily and to avoid all unnecessary dangers. This also means being harmless as doves is about being peaceable and incorruptible, not compromising truth. A disciple of Jesus does not allow themselves to become intentionally combative. There is no worse witness in the world than a belligerent believer. Someone who is loudmouthed, careless, demeaning and belittling is a fool and brings unnecessary shame to the gospel. Just as the serpent is a symbol of cleverness and wisdom, so the dove is a symbol of peace. And that's the key difference. A serpent is sneaky and destructive, but the dove is peaceable and harmless. The dove is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it's a reminder to us that we must rely on the Holy Spirit for guidance. This is an approach that Paul uses in Acts chapter 22. So turn with me to Acts chapter 22. I told you we'd get there. We're in, back in the book of Acts, and my wife's like, are you going to finish the book of Acts? And I know I have like six more chapters to do, but we are going to finish what we started. I promise you that. But we're in Acts chapter 22, and we find this very interesting situation where Paul finds himself in trouble not once but twice, And the series of messages I've been talking about, this four-part series, is about troubles, trials, and your testimony, and how even difficulty that you go through, and the times that you're brought before people or confronted by others, can be a tremendous opportunity for God to bring about a wonderful testimony in your life to share what Jesus has done. A couple weeks ago, before I was unceremoniously removed from your presence, Uh, I was talking about Paul and how Paul was in uh, Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and then there was a riot all of a sudden because people thought that Paul 
was undermining their Jewish traditions and the Jewish religion. And people were in the temple and they were a crowd that was ready to, to beat Paul. And in fact, they were beating him and they were ready to put him to death right there on the spot. And Roman soldiers had to intervene and rescue Paul from this terrible, riotous scene. And then Paul says, well, I want to talk to them. Imagine that, that Paul was uh, concerned and, and cared about the people that had done him wrong, that had falsely accused him, and that had beaten him. He had such compassion for them that he still wanted to share his testimony. He did. But there comes a point where he's sharing his testimony, and then all of a sudden the crowd turns on him. This is their response. Acts 22 Verses 22 through 29, you can read in the Word or you can follow on the screen behind me. And it says that they, meaning the crowd, listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He is not fit to live. Then as they cried out, they tore their clothes and threw dust in the air. And the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that they might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with throngs, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went to the Roman commander saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, Yes. The commander said, With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was so afraid after he found out that he was Roman and because he had had him bound. I want you to stop, I want to stop there and notice a couple things. Paul's in trouble, okay? And the Jewish crowd believed that a Jew should not associate with Gentiles, which are non-Jews. So, uh, and when Paul talked about his ministry to the Gentiles, the crowd became enraged, so much so that they called for his death. And the Roman soldiers wanted to calm the riotous crowd down, decided to take Paul to be scourged and interrogated. Now, I want us to remember something here, okay? If you're unfamiliar with the practice of scourging, this was not like we're just going to hit you with a few rods and send you home. This uh, practice of scourging was the same practice that was done on Jesus. In fact, they're in the same place, same location, And uh, basically what scourging was, it was was a uh, corded whip made of leather cords. And on each of the tips of those leather cords were broken pieces of pottery, metal, and uh, bone. And what it was meant to do is when that whip hit the back of a person, it was meant to gash deep. And in some cases, it could take large chunks of flesh off of a person's body. In fact, many times if a person was scourged, the blood loss or the injury could either result in permanent disability or even death. And so Paul is being uh, tied to this whipping post. And the way that they would do it is they would have this whipping post and they either chain you or strap you up to it with your back exposed, your bare back, and then they would, two uh, Roman soldiers, sometimes one, maybe two, uh, would take turns whipping that person's back. But they would only whip it 39 times because, according to Jewish law, 40 was too many. But you could still very well die from something like that. It was still severe. So Paul is being tied up to this post, being ready to be basically tortured and interrogated. And he doesn't beg for his life. 
He doesn't cry out for mercy. He doesn't say, let me write my senator. He doesn't, uh, you know, beg and plead and, and, and say, it wasn't me, it was somebody else. But very calmly and very coolly, he just asks a question. And he asks a question, is it lawful for a Roman citizen to be beaten before he, he, when he stands uncondemned? And so he asks a question. And I want you to notice something here, is that this is an important question. As a Roman citizen, it was strictly forbidden that any Roman citizen be punished without a fair and proper trial. Paul knew this, and he cleverly asked an important question. Can I challenge you, don't underestimate the power of asking the right questions. When you get in a tough situation, start by asking questions. We oftentimes get into trouble when we simply assume that we know what's going on, what the other person's thinking, what the situation is, and we assume and we launch into that headlong recklessly. But when we ask the right questions at the right times, not talking about being someone who is annoying, okay? There are people that ask questions that can be at times annoying. It's just like your teacher said in school, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There are just inquisitive idiots, okay? There is a difference where sometimes we just ask too many questions and we're not actually accomplishing anything. We're just being annoyed. But I want you to notice that Paul employs a tactic that Jesus often used, that when people confronted Jesus, when they wanted to trip him up and get him into trouble, they would ask him a question, and then Jesus would respond by asking a wise question in response to their question. Didn't directly answer the question, but he would bring up a question that was directly related in some way. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, the teachers of the law tried to trap Jesus into uh, saying that he was either for Rome or against Rome by bringing up a question to him. And they said, Jesus, you know, who is it lawful for us as Jews to pay taxes to Caesar? And it was a loaded question. It's a question that said, if he, if he said that, we should, uh, that you should pay taxes to Caesar, then he's a friend of the Roman government and the Jews wouldn't welcome him. But if he said that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then the, the Pharisees could use that against him. And they say, see, he's no friend of Rome. He is someone who is an insurrectionist, a rebel. So Jesus couldn't win either way. So what does he choose to do? He says, show me a coin. So the man pulls out a, a denarius, and he says, whose face is on that coin? He says, Caesar's. He says, well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar, but render what to God what is God's. And the people were completely, the teachers of the law were completely dumbfounded by it. They just were there with their mouths hanging open because they couldn't believe the wisdom of Jesus. On another occasion, the Pharisees came to him and they saw that Jesus was performing miracles and teaching and they said, who gave you the authority to do this? Who said that you could do this? Who gave you permission to do this? By whose authority do you do this? And Jesus said, I'll answer you by whose authority I do this if you answer me a question. John the Baptist, was his ministry from God or of men? And the Pharisees gathered around together and they huddled together and they talk amongst themselves and they say, well, you know, if we say he's of men, then they'll say, well, why, don't, why didn't you believe? If we say that he's of men, then the people will turn against us because everyone believed that John the Baptist was sent from God. But if we say that he was sent from God, then Jesus will say, then why didn't you believe him? 
And so the Pharisees say, well, we can't really answer this question. And so they come back to Jesus and they say, well, we don't know. And he says, well, neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things. Wisdom, being sharp. Can I just challenge you today that we as Christians, we sometimes are foolish in the way that we rush into things. And if we just ask the question to understand, if we were clever in the way that we handled ourselves, that's what it means to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. There's no guile. There's no malicious intent. There's no slander. Unfortunately, today, when we get attacked by someone, when we are confronted by someone, our immediate human carnal reaction is to be demeaning and insulting. Jesus never did any of that when it came to confrontation. He often used wisdom and kind of put the ball back in their court. Paul does the same thing here. He asks a question that's a very important and strategic question. He simply asks a question to Claudius about something he knew, the rights of a Roman citizen. In the Roman Empire, there's a law called the Valerian Law that forbid a Roman to be beaten or mistreated or imprisoned without fair trial. In fact, they said to, to, to harm a Roman without trial, to lay a rod on the body of a Roman, was to be an affront and an attack on the Roman Empire itself. Paul knew this, and he employed this tactic and this strategy. The penalty for someone who uh, would uh, tr- mistreat a Roman without fair trial is that they could have their, comp- their possessions confiscated, they could be imprisoned, or they could even be put to death. So when you see that these Roman centurions, when they hear that Paul is a Roman citizen, immediately they're like, whoa, 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 no one told me this guy was a Roman citizen. And so he bumps it up the the chain of command to the commander, and the commander comes in and asks him a question. This is not the first time that Paul used the benefit of his citizenship to get him out of a bad situation to continue preaching the gospel. In Acts 16, when he and Silas are in prison, he had the Roman officials escort him out of the city after he had been set free. Paul invokes his citizenship as a means of honor and safe passage from one reason to another. Now I want you to notice something here, is that Paul has dual citizenship here. Now, you know, I grew up Italian, okay? I'm fourth generation Italian on my father's side. It was letting me know some time ago that if I wanted to, I could apply for dual citizenship because I could trace my family back to Italy. I haven't done that. Maybe you have dual citizenship. Maybe that means for you that you are not only an American citizen, but maybe you're a citizen of another country as well and you enjoy the benefits of both. Paul has dual citizenship. He's a citizen of uh, heaven and he's a citizen of Rome. But first and foremost, he is a citizen of heaven. He is in service to the kingdom of God. His first priority is to be a follower of Jesus and that everything else is secondary. Please note that him being a Roman citizen came second. Because him being a citizen served the first citizenship. That as a Roman citizen, Paul was afforded the freedoms of traveling unencumbered and unrestricted throughout the Roman Empire, which made him a perfect missionary. God chose him for that very reason, knowing that he had this background. But Paul didn't get things mixed up. He didn't mix up his allegiance to Rome and his allegiance to the kingdom of God. He saw his citizenship as a means of serving the kingdom of God. As Christians, we must realize that this world is not our home. Heaven is. But while we are here, 
we use the freedom God has given us to spread the message of the kingdom of God. Never, ever confuse the two kingdoms. One is of earth and the other is of heaven. Serve heaven's purposes and look forward to the heavenly kingdom. The same thing holds true for us. We are citizens of heaven first and then Americans second. Regardless of where America goes morally, we hold on to the standards of God's truth and follow those things above all else. We can try and use our citizenship to enact change, but ultimately our allegiance and our loyalty is to God first and only. Amen? God first and only. Regardless of where this country goes, that we will stand for what is right even if it's considered wrong by the laws of this land. That's what we're about today. And that we pray and we move heaven. We serve God's purposes and God's kingdom above all else. We should never confuse the two. One comes first, the other comes second. God chose Paul because of his citizenship and the freedom that he had to be able to travel. Now look at verse 26, we'll come back to that. It says, when the Roman centurion heard that Paul was a citizen, he became concerned because he knew the penalty that would happen if he was a Roman citizen, and he punished him without trial. And so he gets the commander, and the commander asked him, are you a citizen? To which Paul states that he is. Now, there are two ways that you could become a Roman citizen, a legal way and an illegal way, which seems funny to think about when you think about the world that we live in today, when we talk about obtaining citizenship legally and illegally. But the one way was that you could bribe a Roman official and pay a large sum of money, and that Roman official would all of a sudden make you a citizen of Rome. And that's how the uh, Roman centurion, the commander, obtained his. He said, I obtained mine through a large sum of money. Well, you couldn't buy your citizenship. You could bribe your way to citizenship, though, in the Roman Empire, because there was corrupt officials then. And the second way was that you were born into it. Now, Paul was... uh, Paul was born in Tarsus. Tarsus is a city, a capital or key city in the region of Sicilia, which is a Roman province. So probably his mom and dad were Roman citizens because they were part of that province. And so Paul has the benefit of being born into citizenship, a naturalized citizen of the Roman Empire. Once the commander realized that he had just imprisoned and almost scourged a fellow citizen, he unchained him and sent him back to go to trial before his own people. Paul's cleverness and spirit-led wisdom got him out of a really bad situation. Now he finds himself in a different situation. Now let's take a look at the end of chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. Verse 30 of chapter 22. You can go ahead and turn there. Just follow along with me. It says, The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews, He released him from his bonds. Isn't that convenient? All of a sudden, like, okay, you're a citizen. You are no longer chained. You are no longer tied up. You're no longer bound. And he commanded the chief priests and the council to appear, and they brought Paul down before them. Chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, says, Men and brethren, I have lived all in good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to law, 
And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by him said, Do you revile or rebuke God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part of them were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, as concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a large outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested and said, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And there arose a great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul be my might be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring them back into the barracks. Verse 11. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified me for me in Jerusalem, but you must also bear witness for me at Rome. Look at cl- Paul's cleverness here. Okay. First time through, Paul gets himself out of a jam by saying, By the way, did you know? By the way, hi. By the way, did you know I'm a Roman citizen? They're like, you're a Roman citizen? And they untie him and they say, okay, well, we can't handle this because this is, this is not a, a, you know, an issue for Rome to handle. Let's bring him before the Jews and the Jews can decide what to do with him. Now, keep in mind, too, this is probably the most danger that Paul's ever been in. Because this council, this, it's called the Sanhedrin, it's made up of the chief priests and the high priests and there are two factions, Sadducees and Pharisees, and there is a high priest named Ananias. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this is the same council that decided that John the Baptist should die, same council that made sure that Stephen was stoned to death, and it's the same council that decided that Jesus should be crucified. So the prospects of Paul getting out of this don't look very good because he's already dealing with a crowd that's already negatively predisposed towards him. And so Paul begins to speak. He comes forth very politely, very cordially, and says, you know, I want to tell you about my ministry to the Gentiles. And the high priest Ananias, who was the one who really hated Jesus, he had, he had just about enough of hearing Paul. He didn't even let him speak. And he had him, like, smacked in the face by someone that was standing by. Now, that went against Jewish law, because in Jewish law, you were never to be struck without being heard for fair trial first. So immediately that's being done. And that's actually in line with the kind of person that Ananias was as a chief priest. Uh, Jewish historian Josephus says that Ananias was a hot-tempered, greedy, and corruptible man. And so he was the kind of person that uh, always had contempt for others. He was jealous of others too, particularly the ministry of Jesus. And so Paul lashes out in anger until someone points out to him, that's the high priest, and then Paul recaptures himself and becomes humble again, approaching it. But notice in verse 6, he does something very interesting. He knows there's no way out of this. He knows that he's in a bad spot. You ever been in a bad spot? We've been in bad spots before. Maybe you're like, there's a situation you've been in, you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. But Paul does not lose his cool. Paul keeps his calm. And he recognizes that he's sitting in in a group of people that are very different diametrically different. Paul understood history, and Paul understood theology. 
Paul's knowledge of history and law prevented him from being scourged at the hands of the Romans, but his knowledge of theology helped get him out of a bind with the Sanhedrin. Now, keep in mind, Paul's a Pharisee. He's the son of a Pharisee. He used to hate Christians and persecute Christians. He knows what the Pharisees are about. So Paul begins to to use a tactic here to divide the people that are coming against him against each other. And he says, I just want to let you know that I'm a Pharisee, and that I'm a son of the Pharisee, and it's because I believe in the resurrection of the dead that I'm being stand before you today on trial. And immediately when the Pharisees heard this, well, I have no problem with this guy. He's a Pharisee, he's a son of Pharisee, and we believe in spiritual matters. Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in spiritual things. So, and they believed in visions and dreams and God speaking to people that way. That's why a, a lot of Pharisees, after the resurrection of Jesus, put their faith in Christ. Even some priests became Christians as well because they were already predisposed. They already were open to spiritual things. But the Sadducees, who were like Hellenistic Jews, uh, favored education and philosophy, and they didn't believe in, in any spiritual matters whatsoever. So much so that they, they didn't even pay attention to it. They didn't believe that that actually occurred. They believed that once you died, you died, and that was it. So Paul manages to bring up a contentious issue between two different sides, and they start arguing with each other, and they almost completely forget about Paul. So tense is the situation that the Romans who had brought them there, the the soldiers who had brought them there, said, we got to get this guy out of here, or they're going to tear him to pieces. Being wise as serpents but gentle as doves is saying, listen, I'm just going to ask questions. I'm just going to leave things as they lie. And many times when God brings us out of a situation, it's because we're standing on the right things, we're living the right way, and we're asking the right questions, and we're saying the right things. Oftentimes we simply react out of our carnal nature, out of our worldly perspective, instead of allowing the Spirit of God to lead us to wise choices and wise things to say. Being gentle as dove is recognizing that we are a people of God's spirit, people of peace, people who are led by the spirit to speak things at moments in which we find ourselves in tough situations. Even Jesus said to his disciples, when you're brought before rulers and authorities, don't worry about what you will say, but the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. What if we lived by that? Think about that for a moment. What what would happen if the next time your family wanted to have a political argument with you, you just prayed and said, God, what do you want me to say? Instead of going, well, you know, I'm going to defend a particular political leader or party or a particular issue. What if you, by God's Spirit, said, you know, God, help me to be able to say the right thing here. And he led you in wisdom, that Christ-like wisdom that other people go, They didn't know what to say to it because it was so wise and so profound that it made a difference. Know who you're talking to. Be a person who knows your audience. If you're dealing with a hostile crowd, know the best way to talk to them. Talk to them about what they know versus what they don't know. That's the important difference there. So he recognizes that, you know, he finds an issue in which they can disagree on, and eventually he finds himself getting out of a difficult situation. 
one of the things we must recognize is that we must trust the Lord's hand in getting us out of difficult situations. Paul many times had escaped death not only by divine intervention, but by God-given wisdom. When Paul came to Christianity, he uh, used to be a Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians, and then God transformed his life and became a Christian and a preacher of the gospel. When he started preaching the gospel, people were seeking his life. And some of the, the brethren, the disciples, one of the first things they did to get him out of a tough situation is that they actually lowered him over the wall of the city by night in a basket to make sure that he wouldn't be found by those who uh, you know, wanted to kill him. Uh, there's times where God warned Paul by dream or vision not to go somewhere. And make no mistake, too, as we read the book of Acts, we're like, well, there have been times where God miraculously delivered you know, Peter and John and other people uh, and Paul and Silas by miraculous intervention, whether it be through an angel, an earthquake, and God can do those things. But sometimes we're like, I'm just going to kick doors down. I'm going to be contentious and difficult. I'm like, well, God, get me out of this. Remember that the apostles and disciples got into trouble because they were preaching the gospel and doing the right thing, not because they were being difficult or combative. So there are times where God will definitely intervene by way of a miraculous way, but then there's times where God will, by his spirit, give you the wisdom to do and say the right thing to get yourself out of a jam. Not that God's all about getting us out of a jam. Listen, there are times when we do things that are stupid, and then the resulting consequences of that are to teach us so that we can grow and, and learn and mature. I'm talking about when you're serving God and you're doing the right thing and you're, you're walking right before him and you're saying the right things. In those situations where you find yourself in trouble, God will get you out of those situations. Because if he puts you in there, he'll get you out. Remember God's plan in all of this. Serving the Lord can get you into trouble and trials, but God can and will get you out of it. Use wisdom and remember God's plan for you. I want you to notice something, too, that what Jesus says to Paul. Now, okay, Paul had like a really long couple days there, okay? Went from being almost scourged. Well, <laughs> actually, why don't we go back a little further? If you read chapter 22, he, he's almost killed by a crowd. He is almost scourged to death. Uh, he is almost... Um, you know, sentenced to death by the religious leaders of his day. Um, and so each time the Lord gets them out of those situations by directing them what to say and do. But think about this too, is that, you know, God's plan for Paul is bigger than anything that he had experienced or was going through. It says in verse 11 of chapter 23, while Paul was in the barracks, Paul had a vision of the Lord standing beside him, and Jesus says these words to him, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness for me at Rome. God had a plan for Paul that could not be thwarted. God had a, a plan and a directive for Paul that was going to end in Rome. It was going to end in Jerusalem, ironically enough, not like everybody thought it was. Remember a couple weeks back we talked about how there are people that thought, well, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, 
I've been revealed prophetically that, you know, you will die in Jerusalem. But that's not what the Spirit said to him. The Spirit said that, you know, he would go bound to Jerusalem. They assumed it meant death. But Paul is not going to die in Jerusalem. Why? Because God didn't will for him to die in Jerusalem. He had a plan for him that would lead him all the way to Rome. God has a plan for you and that nothing in this world can thwart it. Nothing that anyone can do can undo it when God is in it and he has his direction for you. Three things I just want you to remember as we close this out today. What does it mean to be wise as serpent but innocent as doves? One, be clever and cunning but not corrupt. Use your head. Do your best for God. But don't do it through lies, deception, cheating or slander. Don't sin or lead others into sin. Good goals should never be accomplished by bad behavior. Like, well, I did it because I wanted to do this. That's like robbing a bank and tithing on it. It's like, I'm sorry, that's not God-honoring at all. You can mean well and do bad things to achieve a good goal. But never take shortcuts when it comes to doing what God wants. Remember, His plan for you cannot be undone or thwarted by anyone or anything. Be clever and cunning, but not corrupt. Secondly, be tough-minded but tender-hearted. This means that you've seen and been through some things, but you still maintain a gentle heart before God and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and not becoming a hardened person. Thirdly, be smart and spiritual. Sometimes people can be, Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. They have their head in the clouds but don't know how to deal with the world that they're living in. Be educated. Be well informed about the issues of life and how to respond to them from a Christian perspective. Why do you believe what you believe? Why is it important to you? Do you even know why? Or what is being said out there? Can you counter those arguments or those points from a biblical and godly perspective? Remember those things. And lastly, remember that God has a plan. Like Paul, God has a plan for you too. And it's a good plan, and it's a plan that will give God glory. Be wise in the decisions and choices you make. Use your head and use your heart. Remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Allow God to leave you and never become so hardened that you can't be led by His Spirit. When you do, when you do, God will be honored even in your troubles and your trials. Some of you might be saying today, is like, you know, I've been through a lot, Pastor. How can God possibly be honored through the stuff that I'm going through, through the garbage that I'm facing? How can that even be? And the truth is, by living for God and honoring Him, by these things, He is honored and blessed, and others will hear and know about the goodness of God you believe that today? Let's close our eyes for a moment. Maybe you're going through something right now and you're saying, there's no way out. There is no way out of this situation. It might be debt. It might be financial troubles. It might be conflict with family. It might be trouble with the law. 
It can be anything. It might be difficulties at work. And you say, there's no way out of this. Let me tell you, brother and sister in Christ, as you follow God and honor him, there is always a way of escape. The Lord will bring you out and he will bring you through. If this morning you say, Pastor, I've got a situation like that in my life and I'd like you to pray for me, just raise your hand and slip it up right now and I'll lift you up in prayer as we close this service today. But you say, Pastor, I'm in a spot and I need God's help. Just lift your hand right now. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I just want to give this moment to the Lord. I need God's help. Thank you. Then let's pray. You bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you today that, Lord, you have not left us alone. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Never will you leave us or forsake us that, Lord, that you are there, an ever-present help in time of trouble. I pray today, Lord God, that you would give your people wisdom in how to deal with situations, what to say, what to do, and even what not to say and not to do when they find themselves in trouble. Lord, guide them and direct them in God-honoring ways that they would live in such a way that, Lord God, it would be a blessing to those around them. Help people to hear and understand their heart. I pray, Lord God, that you would, uh, whatever the situation is right now, that you would bring them out of it and that you would bring them through it, that they could say, it's by your spirit that I would able to get out of that situation. Lead and guide them. Direct them, Lord Jesus. May they truly be wise as serpents, but gentle and harmless as doves. Pray for those today or that are maybe have allowed things that they've been through, the troubles and trials of life, to harden them to the world. Lord, I pray that you'd give them a soft heart once again. Lord, may they not become callous to the leading of your spirit or your guidance or direction, but Lord, help them to be tough when it comes to dealing with hard situations, but Lord, that they would still be tender-hearted inside. Lord, help them to have a heart that's still sensitive, still caring, and still loving today. And Lord, we just are grateful for your influence in our life and the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. And Lord, we're grateful for it. And we ask this all in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.